кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Гоном вас. С новым веком. When Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, it managed to convince much of the world that Georgia had started the war. An absurd proposition, given that Georgian troops never left Georgian territory. When Russia annexed Crimea and invaded the Donbass in 2014, it persuaded much of the world to pretend that it was some sort of civil war among Ukrainians and that Moscow was not involved, despite massive evidence to the contrary. But with Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine this year, very few are believing Vladimir Putin's hype. Few believe the fairy tales of Ukrainian Nazis and chemical weapons, and most understand that this is nothing but an unprovoked war of choice on Putin's part. Russia's once feared disinformation machine suddenly looks pathetic. So what happened and why? Today's guest has a lot to say about that, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arkansas McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from New York City is veteran journalist Michael Weiss news director at the New Lines magazine, contributing editor at the Daily Beast, and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. Thanks for having me, Brian. So thanks for coming on. So like uh, back in 2014, after Russia's annexation of Crimea and intervention of the Donbass, you co-authored the report, The Menace of Unreality, How the Kremlin Weaponizes Information, Culture, and Money, together with our mutual friend, uh, Peter Pomerantsev, who I wanted to have on together with you today, but unfortunately was unavailable. That report is still the gold standard on report on disinformation. It really got the ball rolling on this topic. And at the time, Russia's influence operations, disinformation campaigns, agitprop, and active measures looked pretty formidable. And now, at least from my perspective, they look amateurish and ineffective. Um, so to get us rolling, how would you assess Russia's propaganda campaign and influence operation and active measures campaigns in this war? No, I, I agree. I think they, it's been an epic failure. Um, in fact, I, I know our, our other mutual friend, Andrei Soldatov, uh, told me that he was in conversation with um, some GRU sources who have acknowledged that their psychological operations just completely went sideways in, in this campaign. There are a number of reasons for why that is. I think the U.S. did a very admirable job about sort of steadily leaking and telegraphing that this invasion was going to happen and also showing that um, the Russians were going to create false flag attacks and provocations, and you know there was going to be some kind of pretext, um, which sort of inured a lot of Americans and I think Westerners to okay, if this does happen, we know how how that sausage has gotten made, right? Um, which nobody saw in 2014 because frankly nobody saw the annexation of Crimea happening. Um, I think there's another element too, which is it doesn't seem like uh, a great number of people, certainly in the foreign ministry in Russia um, and even in the services, uh, special services from FSB to SVR to GRU, knew that this invasion was going to take place. Um, I was talking a few weeks ago with uh, a, a diplomat at the UN who said that um, there was a big soiree in New York that the, the Russian mission there had hosted for Victory Day. Um, and everybody was sort of eating canapes and getting drunk. And all of a sudden the news dropped that indeed there was a, an invasion taking place, right? So professional diplomats at Turtle Bay genuinely caught off guard. And that this was not 
um, some kind of false front or, or you know, sort of bit of theatrics. They, they legitimately did not think this was going to happen. So it seems like all of government effort, if you like, to try and prepare the information space completely broke down. And we're still a little bit unclear as to how the decision making went right. uh, in the Kremlin. But it does seem to be the case that uh, Putin legitimately believed his own propaganda, that you know this was going to be an easy route. Kiev would fall in 72 hours. The whole war would be over in 10 days. Ukrainians would greet the Russian conquerors as liberators with flowers and chocolates and you know the whole everything we've seen reported on that. And obviously that was as catastrophically miscalculated as as it can be. Um, and now look, I mean, the other side of it, which is both gratifying and I think unprecedented is because Russia lost at least the first phase of this war, right? They could not take Kiev. They were utterly humiliated on the battlefield in many respects. If you look at the losses in materiel and manpower. I think the Pentagon just came out today and said a thousand tanks were taken out by the Ukrainians. Losses of soldiers and, and flag officers, eight or nine generals were up to now. This has a humiliating effect that tends to undermine or degrade any kind of disinformation campaign. So you, you still see things, though, getting picked up. I mean, the one I think bone that they continue to chew on and that unfortunately useful idiots in the West are joining them in that endeavor is that, you know, there are Nazis in the Ukrainian yeah. military. So Azov is kind of the, the one trope that they keep pushing. Although you'll notice a lot of the guys that they allowed to be evacuated who are now in Russian custody from the Azovstal metallurgic factory in Mariupol, there was a video that went around where they were stripping them. Um, basically down to their underwear, looking for Nazi or fascist tattoos. And I think of, of all the guys in that video, only one had something that was along those lines. To say nothing, of course, of what's on the Russian side of this campaign, everything from Wagner, so named, because it's Adolf Hitler's favorite composer, Dmitry Utkin, a GRU Spetsnaz officer with Nazi tattoos all over his neck, to now the German BND intelligence services coming out with this 70-page report, neo-Nazis who've been fighting on the Russian side for, for many years. Um, so I, I would say that that's their only minor tactical victory in sort of waging an influence operation. However, um, ellipsis there, the problem I see going forward, uh, apart from battlefield gains that they're making in Donbass and in, in Lugansk in particular, is suddenly this desire of the West, okay, Ukraine, you've made your point, Molodets, you know, you haven't been conquered, now let's do a deal, right? You need to see right. the territory, we don't want sanctions to last, we're not going to give you multiple launch rocket systems because that would be quote-unquote escalatory. That's the real danger. Um, right. It's our own propaganda uh, that I fear more than what the Russians have to say. Yeah, a lot of that is what our, our another one of our mutual friends, General Ben Hodges, uh, calls yes. self-deterrence, right, where we, right. We're, we're effectively deterring ourselves. And I do want to talk a little bit more about this issue, of the, this sudden pressure on the Ukrainians to make peace uh, and, and, and cede territory. I want to talk about that below the fold, but I'm glad you raised it. Um, just to stick with this just for a bit here, A, the administration did a very good job of preempting a Russian uh, disinformation campaign, and B, yeah. the Russians basically got cocky. Um, believe their own hype and got cocky. What about the rest of us? I mean, in the eight years since you and Peter authored that report back in 2014, there have been countless workshops and seminars and conferences <laughs> and you know, whatnot that you and I have attended over the years where we were, have been admiring this problem, as Ambassador Dan Fried likes to put it. Um, have we learned, has this all 
resulted in something positive? Have we all learned something since the, the time when this really came onto the, the world's attention back in 2014? You know, it's funny. I mean, the report that, that you allude to, Menace of Unreality, when that came out, it got a lot of attention. I'm happy to say most of it positive and, and encouraging, but but also it was controversial. Uh, people didn't like that we, we named a few names of what we believe to be people who were essentially peddling disinformation and propaganda, including think tankers affiliated with Carnegie Moscow, uh, one of whom, Dmitry Trenin, who's now gone full patriotic and is basically, right. you know, espoused the Russian He showed us what he always has been. He just used Well, I mean, the guy was, you know, it, it was no secret that he had been in the GRU and, right. you know, whether he was genuinely a liberal or playing that card because that was kind of part of the game. Who knows? But there was a lot of things he was saying even back then that I found very suspect. So either he was uninformed or he was doing it with purpose, right? So, right. so that we would all be misinformed. I was actually rereading some of that report the other day, and I have to say it's it's kind of quaint and, I mean, outdated in that, you know, we focused almost exclusively on Ukraine, which in 2014, you know, people kind of understood, oh, they took over a peninsula, but hang on, wasn't it all Russians in that peninsula and didn't it historically belong to Russia? And is it a civil war that's happening in the East? Who are these separatists? And it was very murky and it was difficult to explain to the layman who, you know, it didn't affect their daily lives. This is massively different in that this is the, the largest land war in Europe since World War II. And clearly it's become an internationalized conflict in terms of security assistance, sanctions, diplomatic efforts and so on. But also there's another thing that's happened, which is in the intervening period in the United States, we had the Trump presidency. Right where disinformation was being, I mean, the call was coming from inside the house, as they say in the horror movies, right? Our own commander in chief was trafficking in this stuff on an hourly basis and really exhausting the media and the professional sort of chattering classes in how to combat and debunk it in real time, right? I mean, some of the recommendations that Peter and I came up with, such as have an ombudsman for disinformation attached to major news outlets who can basically assess, did we cover this in the right way? Was the editorial framing fair in that we were essentially calling BS on things that we knew to be BS prima facie? All of that stuff actually took root, not because of what the Russians were doing or the Chinese or the Iranians or any other hostile state actors from abroad. It took root because of what the president of the United States was doing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. CNN chirons, Trump falsely states, uh, New York Times, Trump, the president lyingly says- They started Trump, using lies they, and that was controversial exactly, at the time. Exactly, that was very controversial. And now of course you see the backlash to this. I mean, I, I open Twitter, uh, you know, and every day there's some new attack on the disinformation industrial complex or the counter disinformation industrial right. complex. I mean, like this whole uh, DHS board which I thought was A, a bad idea um, in principle, and B, catastrophically executed, and has now made it a lot harder for the government, I think, to try and counteract this stuff, whether domestically or you know, internationally. Um, but yeah, you know, this is the problem, Brian. Things that begin sort of as interesting and original become stale, they become cliche. It's a feeding frenzy that turns it into a, a bit of a racket. And yeah, look, I, I've actually moved on past this stuff. I, as I ha, as think, have I. Um, I. I actually don't think, you know, the, the problem are, you know, uh, troll farms in St. Petersburg or, you know, fake news, quote unquote. I see human operations, um, including the kinetic stuff we're seeing right. unfold in Ukraine as, as the new kind of 
vanguard of all of this. Um, well, I see, yeah, I see all of this, and you see, got this in your report back eight years ago. That I see this is all part of a mosaic of, yeah. of Frontacus, both kinetic and non-kinetic. One of these is that you touched on in the report, and more than touched on, you had a whole section on it, is, is, is finance. And when, when we look at these sanctions, part of the success of Russia's influence operations, uh, both in the West and in the former Soviet space, was that there were networks of influence that had a monetary interest in spreading that information or believing that disinformation. Sanctions have broken a lot of this up, both yes. on both sides of the Atlantic. And I was wondering your thoughts on how the effect, you know, are there knock-on effects in the disinformation space from breaking up these financial networks? Well, sure, in the sense that, you know, for instance, RT folding, because mm -hmm. I guess they've gone bankrupt or they don't, they don't have it in the budget now to, to finance this stuff. That's, that was interesting. Uh, and, and it's not even that people pay much attention to RT, but the voices attached to these networks are very loud on social media, and they have this effect of kind of drowning out or polluting the discourse. So to see, for instance, you know, a guy like Brian McDonald, Right. sanctioned by the UK government. I mean, this is, this is a, a total psychopath who literally made me his beat at RT. No, he was, he, he was on my case for a while, too. He was on everybody's case. And, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, he, he kept sort of snarkily saying, oh, you know, the West is saying there's going to be a war. And there was no, then the war came. And he was embarrassed. And, and now he's sanctioned. I mean, it's it, to me, it, seeing these sort of dominoes fall, seeing people who I've been paying attention to, um, right. much to my chagrin for many years, seeing them kind of humiliated or penalized or whatever. I mean, and, and the oligarchs too, right? I mean, we are witnessing in slow motion the decline and fall of L Londongrad, which has right. been a problem for many, many years. I mean, I lived in, in the UK from about 2010 to 2012. I was writing about Roman Abramovich, Eugene Schwidler, Usmanov, all of these guys, all now either sanctioned or forced because of the pariah effect of sanctions to sell off their assets, their McMansions and apartments in Kensington and their football clubs. And, you know, I mean, now you see, for instance, the stain, the odor that attaches to the Lebedev family. I mean, why did this guy get a peerage? His dad's just been sanctioned by Canada. Uh-oh, you know, like right, now right. he is paying attention to this stuff. So yes, I think all of this is, is to the good. And, you know, fundamentally, there have been a lot of good initiatives introduced uh, by the Biden administration and also by Congress, including anti-kleptocracy measures yes. in the United States, right? I mean, I've been saying for a long time, America is a money laundering hub, not just for right. the Russians, but for all other kinds of actors. And, you know, the idea that you can get an LLC made in Delaware and not know who the ultimate legal beneficiary of that company is and then have them invest in real estate and buy company. I mean, it's 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 ludicrous. You, you cannot have a transparent right. economy with that with this kind of behavior. So, look, it's been pleasant. It's been encouraging to see some of these measures. But again, I am worried about lassitude. I'm worried about complacency and a kind of, you know, okay, okay, you know, we punched the bear in the nose enough. He's he's been, he's been bruised and bloodied. Now it's time to revert status quo ante, but something more approaching that. And you, you, you see this coming out of Paris. You see this coming out of Berlin. The Italians floated this peace proposal, which yes. the president, uh, Ilvis, former president of Estonia, another mutual friend of ours, right. was worried about. 
Um, the you New know, York Times had an editorial. Henry Kissinger. And Henry I Kissinger. can't believe people are still listening to him, but but he called on for this at Davos. So where is this coming from at this moment? I mean, I, I thought we had moved beyond this. It's and what I'm hearing is that there are still voices in the administration, even they're quieted now, that want to do this only China policy and park the Russia problem. Which, uh, if if we don't know by now, that problem is one that will not be parked. Right, and you know, it's every administration comes in hoping to in some way make an accommodation with Russia, right? If not a reset, then okay, you know, we, we need to figure out a way to manage the Russia problem, but it's a nuisance. It's there to be dealt with in a sort of transactional way. And the real strategic threat, the 25-year doctrine for the United States has got to be the rise of China and the, the, the pivot to Asia and all of that stuff. And every administration has been embarrassed by the yep. fact that Russia shows itself to be more than just a nuisance. And you would think, I mean, because look, Joe Biden, the, the nice thing about this guy being in the White House now is he is an, an old Cold Warrior. He is an old transatlantic, I mean, old in the sense that a, a very long venerated career in, in that kind of thing. He is also advanced in years, as we know. He comes from a generation that grew up in the shadow of the Iron Curtain, was there when the wall went up and was there when the wall came down and understands sort of what the Russians are capable of if we allow them too much or to get away with too much. So that's good. But yes, I mean, I prior to this, I had been hearing things because, you know, remember the, the Democrats were banging on for several years that the Russians had done something tantamount to Pearl Harbor, right? right? Uh, in, in interfering in our election. And they robbed the Democratic Party of its presidency and all this stuff. Biden comes back in and suddenly we're having a, a summit in Geneva with Putin. We're talking about cybersecurity cooperation and creeping rapprochement. All of that rent asunder by Putin deciding to engage in this foolhardy and, and catastrophically destructive and self-destructive war. And you'd think, okay, this is the wake-up call we all needed mm -hmm. now. And But as you say, no, there are people who insist that we still have to put Russia kind of in a box and focus on China. And look, I, I don't know how this is going to, to shake out. I mean, I, I know what the Ukrainians want. And there is almost, I mean, remarkable consensus in that country yeah. and also a remarkable opportunity as well. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day about, look, accession for Ukraine, forget about NATO. Uh, they don't even need to be in NATO. NATO needs to be in Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> like, the European Union accession is the, is the key. Political, social, economic benefits. And then for Ukraine to have a voice in Brussels to be part of that, the European community would be huge going forward for the next 25 years. Right now, all of the things that you would want a country like Ukraine to do in order to get its house in order to become a viable candidate, it is prepared to do because it faces this existential struggle. Anti-corruption measures, liberalization, uh, you know, all of the things, the, the box ticking. Now is the time to do it because look at the consensus in this country. Right, right. And, and I the feel, other remarkable yep. thing is that even though Ukraine's in the middle of a war, it is it is the opposite of a failed state. It is a highly functional state. The state is pensions are being paid, salaries are being paid, services are being delivered, which is pretty remarkable when you think about pretty it. Pretty remarkable. But, you know, look, in 2014, the thing that struck me the most and that, that left me very optimistic in a way that I'm usually not was not the government yeah. because the Ukrainian government in 2014 was every bit as corrupt and, and backward and slow moving as you could imagine. But civil society yeah. in Ukraine is the real heartbeat of that country. And civil society has stepped up in this war 
in a way that, well, if you've been going to Ukraine, as I have since 2014, you would have expected. But that, to me, is the real initiative here that needs to be seized. And yes, I mean, as you say, just the, the creativity, the resiliency, the innovation, I mean, at the military level, but also the non-military level. I mean, you know, one of my favorite examples is they're using hobby drones and World War II mortars and they're like, how do we make these mortars more precise so they hit their targets? They are 3D printing fins for the mortars, <laughs> dropping these things from hobby drones that you can buy off Amazon with such precision that they literally just go right into the sunroof of a Russian military vehicle and blow the whole thing up. Not every country can do that kind of right. thing. You know, right. like there, there's such human capital here that belongs in Europe and mm -hmm. belongs in the West. Um, and I, I hope to God, you know, the, the Europeans understand this and see this. There's another trend that's kind of the flip side of the failure of the Russian information campaign. And that is the I don't know what to call this, this this kind of pro-Ukraine uh, like trend around the world. I walk through Washington. I've never seen more Ukrainian flags even in Ukraine. That I see just walking through neighborhoods. I'm not talking about downtown or government yeah. building. I'm talking yeah. in my neighborhood. There's Ukrainian flags all over the place. I heard that the a factory in Texas that makes flags cannot keep up with demand for Ukrainian flags. Zelensky's become an international rock star. There's been a a campaign. It doesn't appear to be coordinated. Um, but how do you see? Because I was a bit surprised. I've one of the things I said is one of the good outcomes of this war is that the rest of the world now understands what I've always understand how awesome the Ukrainians are. How what do you attribute this to? It begins as as you would expect in a, a show of moral solidarity with a victim, a country that was subject to a completely unprovoked and unwarranted war of conquest and extermination, frankly. Right. I mean, I, I do have no qualms with calling this a genocide, given what right. I've seen with my own eyes in Ukraine and what I've read from uh, human rights watch groups. But that only takes you so far. I mean, you know, I, I love my country, but I also know the limitations and shortcomings of my country. We love an underdog up to the point where the underdog remains an underdog and loses. The thing that Ukraine had going for it and continues to have going for it is that it was an underdog that won, or at least that that is defied winning. and defeated the bully when it mattered the most. Nothing succeeds like success. Would Ukraine be receiving M777 howitzers from the United States right now if Kyiv had fallen? Of course not. Of course not. We'd be giving them stuff to mount an insurgency against Russia. But all of the things, all of the heavy kit that they've been asking for for years, frankly, um, to modernize their military to preempt exactly this, this Russian war, they are now beginning to receive. And that's not because of our, you know, humanitarian impulse or our innate sympathies. That's because they have demonstrated what they can do. And also, and this is important too, and this is, I mean, as, as an American explaining this to other Americans, not to kind of pull the conversation back into a, a chauvinistic or solipsistic direction, because America's like, well, what's in it for us? Here's what's in it for us. After 20 years of America waging, well, stupid wars of preemption, but also necessary wars against non-state and para-state adversaries, we have ignominiously lost those wars, or we have withdrawn from them under a cloud of shame and self-abasement. Now, we haven't even fought this war, but we have, in terms of intelligence sharing, in terms of, of security assistance, allowed a country, a partner that really ought to be classified as an ally to defend itself properly. And Ukraine has become, in a sense, a metaphor for the West, right? Mm -hmm. And it has also become a way of undoing or at least correcting 
for a succession of American failures, not least of which was last summer, kind of chaotic and, to my mind, shameful withdrawal from Kabul. So in the, in the American popular psyche, as it were, Ukraine, I think, is standing in for our own rather checkered history of late. This is happening in Europe as well. It's, 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 happening, it's happening in Europe. And, and look, I have to say, you know, I mean, this is not a conversation for this show, but living in, in the United States, I mean, you, you've seen now we've had two massacres within the space of what two weeks. This last one, small children, like yeah. close in age to my own daughter. I can't even turn on the TV and watch it because it, it, right. it's, it's too horrifying. And I'd also, I, I lose focus from what I'm trying to do in my work. And then you have silly, meaningless debates. Uh, San Francisco saying we're going to abolish the term chief, um, such as like chief of the school or whatever, in deference to Native Americans. And uh, chief is an English word derived from Old French and Latin before that, and is used across you know, modern vernacular to, you know, chief of staff, spy chief, just meaningless, stupid shit. When you go to Ukraine, all of this falls to the wayside. I was more depressed leaving Kiev on my last trip, and I'm going back uh, in a few weeks. I was more depressed on my last trip than I ever been before. And this is a war zone, and there's awful things happening in this country. But when you see a people really discover what it means to be alive, because, you know, it was a near thing for them to be alive. When you see what really matters in this world, going back to kind of older virtues and older values, it is galvanizing. It is, it is electrifying. And um, again, I, you know, it's hard for me to try and explain this to people who have never been there, um, who don't really understand the conflict. They hate Putin and they know that Russia's the bad guy in this war, but you know, it's kind of this ineffable thing. You have to be there to experience it. And yeah, I mean, for that reason, I, I remain emotionally wedded to this right. conflict, you know? I mean, one thing I would add here too is the Ukrainians have been very good at PR too. They're very good oh, at getting their yeah. message out. Always have been. Um, it's largely been civil society that's been doing this, but they've been they pioneered things like Stop Fake and the Euromaidan Press and all. Of that. They're very good at getting information out in multiple languages. Um, I remember several years back on there, they, they do it in a funny way too. I forget which Ukrainian news website it was, but in their English version, they refer to Russia as the Russia. Right. Um, and they, uh, in their Russian version, when they said in Russia, they said Narasi, like to, to play on the, the Na Ukraina, which is, is increasingly falling out of usage now. Before we shift into the second half, talk about the situation on the ground and these misguided calls for Ukraine. To, to deal with Russia. I do want to touch on one thing. You you recently published a, a really, really good article about the rumors about Putin's health and whether yeah. or not this might be some kind of information operation, either by them or by us. Can, can you lay out your thinking on that? Because there is a lot of speculation around Putin's health uh, right now. Um, I yeah. really don't know how to put it. And nobody really does. I mean, you know, look, he certainly looks to be in poor health. He walks with an awkward gait, almost a limp. His face looks very puffy, which doctors who look at Putin's face is particularly in the last few months. I mean, there's a marked difference between the February 4 kind of lead up to the war and Victory Day, May 9th, right? right? He was, looked like a, a chipmunk blown up. They say that this is very consistent with steroid use. Now, you can get steroids for anything. The, the old saw in medicine is uh, nobody should die without the benefit of steroids. But then the first half of that equation is nobody should die. So why is he taking steroids? What's he got? And look, there's been all kinds of theories, Parkinson's disease, um, thyroid cancer, oh no, just back problems. And I did the story because, and again, this comes back to the pariah effect of sanctions and all of that. So um, several months ago, or around, mm, I'd say the first week or second week of April, a Western venture capitalist reached out to me on you know, my 
Proton Mail, which I had put out a call on Twitter saying, like, look, if you've worked for a law firm or a bank and you know where Russian money is stashed, bad Russian money, that is, I've been writing about this for 10 years, um, reach out to me. Just an open casting call, essentially. This guy reached out and he said, look, you know, I do business with oligarchs all the time. And one of them had told me um, Putin has got blood cancer. And I was like, okay, sure, whatever. And I'm like, well, this is you saying it. And he's like, well, I mean, you know, he told me who the oligarch was. And I said, I know who that is. And uh, sure, I mean, that's somebody to be in a position of moderate to high knowledge about the inner workings of the Kremlin, if not the presidential administration itself. And I said, but, you know, no offense, I don't know who you are. And he's like, well, what if I record a conversation with this guy the next time I speak to him? I said, oh, okay, well, that would go a long way to showing your bona fides. So he did. And um, I have this conversation and most of it's about how do I protect my interests and oh my God, you know, this crazy guy in the Kremlin has unraveled 20 years of investment and, you know, creating this sort of modern integrated, globally integrated Russian economy. He's turned the world upside down. It's a disaster. And then in the course of the conversation, he says, yeah, you know, and he's gone nuts. The problem is with his head. Uh, And also, you know, he's, he's dying. And we all hope he dies. What do you mean he's dying? You know, he's got blood cancer. Okay. So now in my very smiley or suspicious Percy kind of mind, something like that is too good to be true. I started to think, okay, so one, let's assume for the sake of argument, it is true. Uh, what are the symptoms? Well, first of all, what kinds of blood cancers are there? What are the symptoms? What are the, the treatments indicated? And does this confirm in, in any way to things that have been reported on uh, credibly, um, you know, such as the investigation Prayek did about mm. him traveling with a retinue of cancer specialists, including and especially a guy who has written about geriatric uh, thyroid cancer. The second hypothesis or supposition was um, this guy's just talking out of his hat. He doesn't know. He's, he's just heard some scuttlebutt, unverifiable. Right. The third and most tantalizing option would be, well, okay, here he is in a phone call about 11 minutes long, bitching about Putin destroying not only Russia, but this guy's own livelihood, his own profile portfolio. What if he is planting this in the the ear and then therefore the mind of a a well-connected Western businessman, knowing that guy's going to go around telling other people, trying to uh, create this atmospheric of Putin the dying animal, Putin the weak, Putin the vulnerable, such that it it emboldens the West to escalate the war. And uh, perhaps also, if, if this is a rumor that's been circulating in Moscow, which it kind of has been, undermining Putin's leadership, making him more susceptible to an internal power struggle, a coup, or, you know, bull in the back of the neck kind of thing. So those are the three options. I don't weigh in, I don't uh, have any confidence in any of the three. I'm, I'm just kind of speculating here. Mm-hmm. But since that article has come out, what's happened is, I mean, the UK tabloid press picked it up, mm-hmm. did what they normally do, which is they strip all the nuance away and it's, oligarch <laughs> says, Putin's got blood cancer. So right, right. And then everybody's debating about it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the interesting thing is the Ukrainians uh, started to make comments about this. So Budanov, the head of their military intelligence service, Gur, gave an interview to Sky News saying, oh, Putin has several ailments, one of which is cancer. Okay, that was within 24 hours of my article dropping. And I reached out to the Ukrainians. I said, are you like just turning what I did into some psyop? No, 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 we have our own human sources and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, okay, if you say so. <laughs> Budanov said it again uh, in, an, in an interview with uh, Ukrainska Pravda, 
uh, which is actually a very interesting interview apart from the cancer thing. And, and in that one, he qualifies it and says, well, you know, he could hang on for another couple of years. Let's not, you know, assume he's going to pop off because of his, his ailments. And then you had people who, frankly, didn't want weighing into this, such as Christopher Steele, all uh -huh. the press saying, oh, yeah, that was, you know, he's, he's, something is wrong with him, cancer for sure. And then, to my mind, the most interesting was Richard Dearlove, the former head of MI6, uh, gave an interview in which he suggested in by 2023, I think Putin will be in a sanatorium because his health is is so, you know, in such decline. Now, Dearlove is not a crank and he's not a fool. And I've been, you know, I periodically check in with Western intelligence services, who, of course, I had run my story by and they came back with, I don't know, you know, haven't heard anything like this, knew about the bad back, but there's been all kinds of rumors, nothing verifiable on cancer. And I said, even to those who were very skeptical, I said, Dear Love saying this makes me think that he's not just freelancing, you know what I mean? Like, mm. uh, could it be that the Brits are now using their former directors or chiefs to kind of plant these seeds? Now, the interesting thing here is why would they be doing that? Do they have something or do they want to sort of create this, this perception of Putin, the dying dictator? for their own strategic purposes. So look, again, it's it's fascinating to kind of contemplate, but it's right. all very speculative. And, you know, I just kind of did a tour de horizon of all the claims that have been leveled, um, especially in, in recent days. So I don't want anyone coming away from this conversation thinking, I am asserting Putin's got blood cancer. He's no, got any all they have to do is read your article. It yeah, no, and I, I wrote that in a very, uh, specific way. It was very knew. responsibly and carefully worded. And, yeah. uh, and, and I mean, look, it's, I it's it. so easy to get taken in by these things. I mean, wishful thinking and, you know, this kind of, it, it plays to our own sort of hopes for Ukraine, right? If, if this madman um, in the Kremlin dies, well, I mean, or is know, it it, it, yes, it, it could, could completely alter the entire landscape of Europe and indeed, yeah. I mean, the globe. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, but it's it's fascinating that these rumors are escalating. And, and also they're coming from the Russian elites now. Yep. Um, whatever reason, again, I don't know. But um, that that's something that hadn't really been, or at least to my mind, I hadn't seen much of that in the past. So Yeah, no, I, did. I, I wanted to touch on that before we dove into the situation on the ground. So this is a good place to segue. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and shift gears to look at the situation on the ground. Are Russia's more limited war objectives in the Donbass allowing it to have more battlefield success? And what does that mean going forward? I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from New York City is veteran journalist Michael Weiss, news director at the New Lines Magazine, contributing editor at the Daily Beast, and Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный, я уже делаю свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... С Новым годом вас, с Новым веком. 
As Russia appears to shrink its war aims and concentrates its forces in the Donbass, it seems poised to make some incremental gains in the east. Ukrainian officials fear a repeat of the siege tactics Russia used in Mariupol as it tries to capture Severodonetsk. Putin also signed a decree this week opening a fast-track Russian citizenship for Ukrainian residents of areas controlled by the Russian military. This suggests Moscow may be getting ready to annex the territories it controls. But at the same time, Russia moved nuclear-capable Iskander missiles into Belarus, just 50 kilometers from Ukraine's border, putting large swaths of central and western Ukraine within striking range. Michael, how do you view the situation on the ground at the moment? Russia seems to be making incremental gains as it limits its goals, but at the same time, it's moved those Gander missiles into Belarus, uh, which can hit Western Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, look, smarter people than I who've done sort of strategic studies on Russia and its its nuclear capability um, will weigh in on the likelihood of Putin using nukes. I mean, coming back to but those our are nuclear discussion. capable. They're not nuclear armed, just to be clear. Nuclear capable, not nuclear armed. But this is the conversation we're all having, right? Oh, you know, a, a cornered or a losing Putin is a dangerous Putin, as opposed to the Putin that we've seen already, who's quite dangerous himself. But, you know, look, in terms of are we facing World War Three or something like that, let's leave that to one side and just talk about the kind of lay of the land. So, yes, it's true. Um, there's a very good map. I wish I could have a visual component to this conversation to show you the shrinking war aims from February 24th. Right. Until the, New York, a, the New York a, Times did a good piece on that. Yeah. The New York Times did a very good piece on it. And it, you, basically, you've got now a an enormous mass of Russian manpower and firepower built up, currently trying to take a limited swath of territory, not a particularly strategically significant swath of territory, but they've got heavy artillery. I believe the uh, force ratio is seven to one, according to one of the advisors to Zelensky, which is essentially the kind of ratio they would have needed to go into Ukraine, right, to, to occupy large expanses of territory. So they're making um, slow but significant gains in Lugansk. Question is, though, are these gains um, permanent? You know, for instance, they're using heavy artillery to basically drive the Ukrainians back. But I've yet to see comprehensive, credible evidence that they're setting up permanent occupation-style garrisons in the places they've taken over. And keep in mind, what the Ukrainians have brought to bear so far is only a fraction of the Western security uh, assistance that they have now been in receipt of. So, for instance, the New York Times reported a couple of days ago that of the 90 M777 howitzers, which is kind of like the creme de la creme NATO standard 155 millimeter shell howitzers, uh, only 12 are actually in the field. So you have the overwhelming majority of this stuff has, has yet to be moved eastward. Now, there's a question of are there problems with Ukrainian supply lines, Ukrainian logistics? Uh, also, you know, they cannot afford to divert too many resources away from Kyiv. As goes Kyiv, so goes all of Ukraine, really. Um, they've been pushing the Russians out of Kharkiv. If they were to divert manpower away from Kharkiv, the Russians could come back in easily. So, look, it's a difficult situation, but, you know, in any war, there's always a give and take. And, you know, so far, if you look at the just the, the broad map, yes, Russia has created this sort of southeastern littoral that is integral to the land bridge, which is direct line of communication from Russian Federation territory to Crimea, in addition, of course, to the bridge that they had built already connecting the two territories. What does Putin want? 
basically at this point? Does he does he want all of Donbass? Does he want just the major sort of uh, population centers, Slavyansk being one where the Ukrainians still hold terrain? You know, it's 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 not looking good at the moment, but it's a little bit premature to say Ukraine is losing because again, a lot of the things they can bring to bear and will bring to bear, they simply haven't yet. Russia is still facing serious problems in terms of uh, morale, resupply, mobilization. I mean, they have a tank problem. Now, keep in mind, I just want to stress this. I'm not a military expert. I'm not a weapons expert. But I talk to people who are. And there was a very good thread on Twitter about Russia's serious shortage of modern tanks. So now they're pulling out basically relics from World War II, T-64s, and inserting them into the field. I mean, like, look, they had a T-90, which is kind of like the top tank in their arsenal until you get to the T-14, which is sort of the really modern vehicle. A T-90 was taken out in Donbass, I think, a week ago. Using very rudimentary methods, they used a Carl Gustav anti-tank system, which is a Swedish anti-tank system that I think dates back to the late 60s. Um, and they they managed to just blow up this you know kind of modern state of the art Russian tank. So the Ukrainians still have a lot they can put into this. But yes, it's true. Um, it, it cannot be denied that the the Russians are steadily gaining ground in Lugansk. Uh, and you can see reports from journalists in the field who say, you know, it's a constant bombardment of artillery. For every you know one shell the Ukrainians fire, the Russians fire ten. And I've seen images just today. I don't I don't know exactly where this is, but it looks like thermite bombs. I mean, literally, it looks like the sky is raining fire, uh-huh. droplets of fire. I mean, that's the kind of firepower that the Russians are. And this is all in the Luhansk area. Yes, yes. Um, so look, I mean, you know, are they going to lose all of Lugansk? I mean, you know, are they are they calculating what can we afford to withdraw from? Uh, it seems that you know, at a certain point, the Russians will end up in densely populated urban areas, which is not really going to be their forte, right? That's when you get back into mobile defense, which the Ukrainians were very very good at in the first three months. So what they would do is using uh, fire and forget systems, um, you know, portable weaponry. They would drop behind enemy lines, blow up supply lines, um, fuel tanks, things like that, and basically get the Russians when they were sleeping. Um, so they could very feasibly be doing that in Lugansk. And, you know, there's also the question of, for the last eight years, the Minsk protocols have put fetters on what the Ukrainians can do realistically and diplomatically. Um, I have seen now evidence that they are capable of detonating things deep inside long-held Russian or separatist, quote-unquote, territory. So the the insurgency, the diversionary tactics that a lot of people thought was going to be the only thing the Ukrainians had once their government fell, um, they are now bringing to bear in parts of the red-tinged areas of the map. Can they feasibly mount a, some kind of counteroffensive in Crimea and all these things? Oh, not at the moment, no. Uh, do they really think they're going to do that? Or is that just part of their propaganda? I don't know. I mean, you know, you'd have to ask them, and even then, they'll probably just give you the sort of brochure answer. But if the the, the last three months have, have proved anything, it's that we underestimate what the Ukrainians are capable of at our peril, and allowing the Russians to draw in farther tends to be kind of their strategy um, in terms of of how they screw up their spot. So yeah, because when we were looking at the Russian strategy when they they shifted gears to the Donbass, my assumption was goal number one was to create the land bridge. They got that right. now. Right. right. And then then I had a question. Are they going to push inland towards like Zaporizhia and Dnipro or are they going to push along the coast and try to take Odessa or both? Um, right. Or are they going to, you know, 
uh, declare victory and, and call it a day. Are those the three possibilities you see, or do you see anything else I'm not thinking of? Yeah, I mean, you know, the early days when there was talk of war, the military intelligence service kind of gave me three different scenarios. And I, I'm going to screw up on the specifics a little bit. But broadly speaking, there was what ended up happening, which was a full-scale war for regime change, you know, try and take Kyiv and occupy population centers. Um, another scenario was the, the southeastern littoral, the land bridge. Another was escalate in Donbass. So it seems like there's a kind of hybrid model of um, options mm -hmm. B and C now after option A had failed. But, you know, look, even people who at the start of this thing were quite um, bullish on what the Russians were capable of, um, such as Michael Kaufman, Rob Lee, they are now all saying that, yeah, look, Russia will make tactical gains. But, you know, the long game actually favors the Ukrainians because they have all the metaphysical components, you know, including very high optimism, absolute um, social consensus about the necessity for fighting the war. Manpower, they don't really have a shortage um, because they can continue to create more soldiers, more, more people are being called up. The question is, what are the Ukrainian losses? Zelensky said the other day uh, between 50 and 100. Now, was he referring to current losses or was he referring to losses at the height uh, of the Battle of Kiev and, and the first phase of the war? Um, Carl, who's an Estonian military analyst, Carl is in inverted commas because I can't really give you his real name, um, who's been kind of shamanistically prescient about the way this war was going to go, called it a schoolboy error for Zelensky to offer that um, statistic of Ukrainian losses and suggested that, in fact, it's not what they're currently losing, because, again, they're they're pulling back from areas where they would be in the, the direct line of fire. Um, he said that that was more of the kind of the... And those are daily figures, I'm assuming. Daily figures, right. Uh, 50 to 100, which, you know, certainly sounds a lot. But when your entire nation is at war, it's 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 not as high as it as you might think. And, you know, the Russians are, are losing fewer soldiers now than they were. Um, and that's simply because, again, it's you're not seeing active engagement in combat. This is a fires campaign. Right. Who's got more artillery? And at the moment, the Russians do. Now, circling back to what we were talking about a bit in the in, in the first half, this thing that's bothering you and bothering me, yeah. um, these sudden calls to sue for peace at this moment. Do you see these calls connected to these Russian gains? Is it a sense of, oh, no, the Russians are about to turn the tide. Let's get a peace deal now while the getting's good. Or do you see something else going on? I mean, it could be part of that, but, you know, it's, it's funny. Be, the narrative always lags far behind the facts, and the narrative has shifted to Ukraine is winning. Uh, in fact, there was an article in Politico last week, was it, or maybe just the, at the tail end of the week before last, which suggested that, you know, the fears in, in Western European capitals at the beginning was, what do we do when Russia wins? Now the fear is, what do we do when Ukraine wins? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in other words, you know, a humiliated and degraded Russia is going to be very dangerous to deal with, and we're going to have to put the pieces back together, and a Marshall Plan for Ukraine, and all of these things that, as we discussed earlier, people like Macron and Schultz don't necessarily want to do. I don't think it's because that little pocket in Lugansk is going Russia's way. I don't think that's what's driving this um, accommodationist, if not appeasement-minded uh, rhetoric. I think it's simply, this is three months in, billions upon billions, probably, I don't even know what the figure is, has been spent on security assistant uh, costs that have been- 52 incurred. billion from the US alone. 
52 billion from the U.S. alone to say nothing of the global economic costs of cutting off, I mean, Russian coal, right. the U.S. has cut off oil and gas, but like, you know, Europe is now winding down, uh, having to do things that it didn't want to do for so long, and I think should have done a long time ago, and it's good that they're finally getting religion on this stuff. But, you know, there's a kind of malaise, a, a, you know, a sense of, okay, you know, time to move on. We can't afford to have this war drag on for a long, long time, or if it does drag on, it needs to be a kind of mm, frozen or mushy conflict, right? Stalemate is the term that keeps getting used a lot. Um, but if you give Ukraine the, the kit that it needs, including, as I say, HIMARS, which are have a very far range, I think hundreds of kilometers, multiple launch rocket systems, very mobile, so they can move them in and out of territories pretty quickly. And even the skeptics on security assistance who shot down a lot of Ukrainian ass, including, you know, F-16s and, you know, mm. things that simply they couldn't grapple with at the moment have said that HIMARS would be a good thing. The fear there is no, because that's going to piss Putin off too much. And the Ukrainians could use it to fire rockets into Russian territory, even though they're already doing that. They're I already mean, doing that. Yeah. In Belgorod, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I, I try to, to, to avoid making predictions because I think... It's a dangerous game no matter who you are, but when it comes to a war, even if you're a four-star general, you shouldn't be making predictions. You should only be thinking strategically and how best to win. So I don't know. Um, I don't know how it's going to go. But I still don't see what Russia could possibly do in the next two to three weeks is a far cry from what it sought to do. And that has to be borne in mind by anybody looking at the map or just the kind of daily TikTok of information. Russian military bloggers, uh, for instance, are seething with contempt about the way this war has been prosecuted. Igor Girkin, Strelkov, as he used to be known, um, the, the commander of the separatist cause, I mean, has just on a weekly basis issued these kind of, you know, denunciatory comments on Putin and the military. And so if, if the hardliners in Russia think this thing has gone sideways, even when it looks like, okay, they're kind of making some gain, that tells me that it's gone sideways, you know, this is not what, what they set out to do, which is good. Now, the other thing that's going on as all this talk of reaching some kind of accommodation is out there is you also have serious talk of, of war crimes charges being brought against up uh, to, to people in the chain of command, up to and including Putin himself. That's going on. And then the other thing is we've seen what happens on territory that Russia controls, um, the mass graves, the execution, the, the atrocities. And we're not just talking about Ukraine giving up land here. We're, no. we're talking about Ukraine giving up people. And that should be mitigating against these calls for Ukraine to make territorial concessions, because they're not just territorial concessions. They're, they're concessions of their citizens. Right. And, and the, the way this is, I mean, coming back to the original uh, point of conversation about Russian propaganda, you know, I still see little sort of bat squeaks of bad editorial framing, like, Agence France Press is sort of the undefeated champion of terrible headlines because all they end up doing is just kind of giving the, the Kremlin its own literal minded interpretation of things. So they said that, you know, Russia is relaxing citizenship requirements for people. Uh, no, they're not. Right. They're doing annexation, right? Ireland right. relaxed citizenship requirements so that people such as myself can get Irish citizenship because my grandfather was born there. Let's not equate what they're doing with something right. anodyne. Are euphemistic, you know? And yeah, you're quite right. I mean, how many Ukrainians have been forcibly deported, kidnapped. trans kidnapped? Yes, exactly. That's that is the correct term to use, kidnapped. Good Anglo-Saxon word. And to say nothing of, as you say, I mean, we still don't know the death toll in Mariupol. It could be as high as twenty to thirty thousand. Right. The credible allegations of war crimes, including rape as a weapon of war, 
are staggering and horrific. I mean, these are the kinds of things you haven't seen since World War II. I mean, you have, but on this scale, that is, you haven't in Europe, seen. Europe, yeah. Um, and indeed, I mean, you know, you see how Russia has this reign of terror over territory that it controls, and now the argument is, let's give them more. Mm. It seems both immoral and and illogical to me. You raise the issue of the Ukrainians being kidnapped and forcibly taken to Russia. I mean, I've seen different numbers here in the tens of thousands and even the hundreds of thousands, including a lot of children who have been taken away from their parents. Exactly. Um, not enough attention has been given to this. And I consider this an open call for, for listeners out there. I very much want to do a program about this, but I want to do a program about this the right way. Uh, with somebody that's been following this closely in a forensic way. Um, yeah. So any, any suggestions are certainly uh, welcome on Twitter. I know, Michael, you and I discussed possibly talking about that, but neither of us feel really comfortable. It should be human rights experts. It should be um, a war crimes prosecutors. I mean, you know, the Ukrainians are very smart in inviting international observers into places like Bucha, Borodyanka, where I was a month ago, to say, like, you don't have to take the Ukrainian government's word at this. We have conducted our own investigation, and this is what we have found. Right. And look, I mean, the other problem with this, Brian, and, and this, you know, this is just from a, a mass psychological point of view, people get atrocity fatigue. You know, mm -hmm. people do not want to have it shown to them on a daily basis, babies being pulled out of the room. I, I saw this firsthand in Syria, you know, and that was a, almost a decade-long conflict. I, I covered it intimately. To a certain point, I stopped. I had to be desensitized to it. I couldn't keep, you know, writing about it. Um, and yeah, the ordinary American, look at what has just happened in our own country in the last two weeks, right? So our attention span is contracting. All the more reason that strategically Ukraine must succeed because, again, Americans like winners. And if Ukraine wins this war or at least disallows Putin to win it the way he even now has defined victory, that is a very important thing. And I think that will keep the American and Western consensus going. Because the popular level, you know, Ukraine has an enormous support. The elites in certain countries. I was having this conversation with Benjamin Tallis. I did a podcast on my show, What is Wrong with Germany? A perennial question, you might say. But I said, you know, what's interesting is that the younger generation in the United States, so 25 and below, tend to be a kind of wishy-washy on Ukraine. They don't really get it. Or, you know, God forbid, they, they actively support Russia. Um, older people in this country absolutely get it because again, it's it sort of scratches on the brain from the Cold War and and the, you know the big bad Soviet Empire. In Germany, younger generation gets it. Their parents and certainly their grandparents have been you know preaching to them about the atrocities their own government committed in the 20th century, genocide, uh, all of the things we're seeing Russia commit or do in in Ukraine now. So they're very much on side, and yet the political establishment is still the ghost of the past that, that keeps sort of dragging things along when the present and the future are too. Although they have moved farther than I really even thought they would. I mean, Sure, but, you know, the, the, the tragedy is that it took this tragedy to get this, them yeah. to do you know, It wasn't foresight. It wasn't strategic vision or any much less any kind of moral imperative. It was, oh, okay, I guess we have to do something now because right. a war right. of extermination is happening not far from here, you know. Right. Uh, on that happy note, as I look at the clock, I'll wrap it up, unless there's anything you want to add, Michael, before we call it a week. Um, no, I mean, I just, I would urge your listeners, I don't think I have to because they're listeners of your show, to continue to pay attention, um, particularly to Ukrainian calls for security assistance, um, calls for increased sanctions, calls for energy independence. Uh, these things matter. I mean, it's a life or death struggle. It's not some kind of abstract or academic exercise. I'm going there 
in a few weeks, and I, I'll happy to come back on the show and report back to you what I. Yeah, heard. no, I sir. When you when you get back, I will be contacting you about that. But I, I certainly would love to have you on when you get back from Ukraine. So on that note, we shall wrap it up for this week. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington and McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from New York City has been veteran journalist Michael Weiss, news director at the New Lines Magazine, contributing editor at the Daily East and Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Thank you, Michael, for an enlightening discussion. Anytime, Brian. Great. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. The Power Vertical podcast will take a brief hiatus next week as I will be in Bratislava, Slovakia to speak at the GlobeSec Forum for the first time since before the pandemic. Looking forward to it very much. But we will be back in action with a new episode on June 10th. So until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.